0: Right. Sounds like a game show. I don't know what game show. <laughs> no, there'll be no dancing. Whoever said that got to dance. No. Hey, welcome everybody. Um, glad that you guys are here, you hearty individuals, to come out on a on a cold, uh, below-freezing day like this. Um, Hopefully I've got something that's going to warm your heart up just a little bit. Um, It's a message we're continuing in in works of the heart, the the book of James, or the epistle of James. Um, Such a practical book about making sure that if you call yourself a Christian, your life ought to look like that. Your life ought to look like You're a Christian. There ought to be something, whether they can put their finger on it or not, people ought to be able to look at you and the way that you live your life and the way, not just here in church, where we're all on our best behavior, most of us, um, but out there in the world. People should look at you and know immediately something's different. Maybe they don't know what it is, but that's your opportunity to tell them what's different about you. And that's what James says, that if your faith doesn't produce real life change, then it's worthless. That's his words, not mine. And chapter one that we're looking at is all about holding on to your faith during times of adversity, times when your faith is tested. Because it's much easier to have faith when everything's going your way. Everything's coming up roses. It's really easy to have faith. But when adversity hits... That's when things are tested. And we're taught again and again and again that the reason that you are tested is so that you can stand up in the face of a trial. Because the trials that we're going through in our life right now pale in comparison to what's going to happen before Jesus comes. And whether you're a pre-tribulation or a mid-tribulation or a post-tribulation, we're barreling down that road right now. Anybody else feel that? You look at the things that are going on in the world right now. I saw a story just this last week, and I wasn't going to say I should have had. This would have been a good visual. But the state of New York on their state Supreme Court building has a statue of, I think it's Moses, um, one of Zoroaster. They have a couple statues up on top, and they just recently put another statue up on top, It's a gold idol that all I can describe it, it looks like Medusa, okay? It's got tentacles for arms and big ram's horns. Um, Many people say it's the patron goddess of abortion, and I don't know if there is such a thing, Um, but you can look at it and make your own decisions. Um, This is the way the world is going, and it's not going to get better Scripture tells us it's going to continue to go. So we can either sit and curse the darkness, or we can celebrate the light and be the light and carry that light wherever we are. And we do that by being different than this world. We can stand out and rail against this world, but that's not going to bring somebody to Christ. Being different is what's going to do that. And so James is telling us in this book, be different be different. Let your faith play out in your life so that people can look at you and know that there's something different about you. I had a very, very long conversation with a gentleman a couple weeks ago, um, and his, his contention was that we have a God who made us in his image, and if he made us in his image, he also knows how we're going to act and therefore, anything that we do, whether it's sin or, or good or, or whether we serve it or we don't serve, whatever, that's all on God. So it's really not our responsibility. <laughs> I thought, and, and this is someone who professes to be a believer. So if you have the Holy Spirit and God made you in his image, then basically you're just a smaller version of God. You're like God's child, right? And they go, well, okay. So you're right on the fact that we're God's children, but not in the fact that we no longer have responsibility for anything. Um, but so many people are in that place. And what we're going to talk about today is a section in James, where just my subtitle is Trials and Temptations, okay? Because some people would contend that God puts temptation in your path purposely either to mess with you or to see how you'll act, see what you'll do. And that he would put temptation in your path, knowing full well that many of us are going to give in to that temptation. That's not the God I know. That's not what scripture says. But that's what many people believe. The temptation that comes my way is just God toying with me. Okay? Now, if you're into different things like polytheism and Greek and Roman culture and things like that, that's what those gods do. Zeus and Apollo and all that, we're all just play things for them. And they just throw things in your path to see what happens and see how you'll act, and then they kind of have fun with that and toying with you. And if you're really, really lucky, you'll do it the right way and please them. And maybe they'll throw something your way. But if not, they'll smite you with lightning, and, and that's end of story. There's a significant portion of this world who believes that, whether it's Hindus or Buddhists or Muslims. And a surprising number of Christians believe that. But that's not how God works. That's what we're going to talk about today in this section of Scripture. James chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. It's a small bite. But as I was telling the Wednesday night crew, Um, I had nine pages of notes (laughs) for six verses. I pared it down for you all just a little bit. I'm going to read it, James 1, 12 to 18. I'm going to read it for you. Follow along. I'm in the New American Standard. If you have your Bible with you and it's not that version, it might read a little bit differently. And if you don't, don't worry. Here it comes. Verse 1, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. No one is to say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it has run its course, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creations. So there's a lot of words in there that I think we all need to make sure that we're on the same page before we can really get into this. So I want to define a few key words. And this is more the dictionary definition of the key words. And we'll talk about it more later. First of all, trial. What's a trial? Okay, a trial besides going to court and standing in front of a judge. Think more like a clinical trial. It's the test of the performance, qualities, or suitability of someone or something. That's trial. Then there's Temptation. A lot of us know what temptation is. We kind of intuitively know. It's the desire to do something, especially something wrong or unwise. And then the last one, entice. To attract or tempt by offering pleasure or advantage. So trial, temptation, and entice. A lot of people conflate those three ideas, and they think that they're really all just the same thing. They're very, very different, and we're going to talk about that. Let's look closer at what James is talking about here. There's going to be a few little Greek lessons in here today, so bear with me, but they're significant in their meaning. James 1, verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Here's our very first Greek lesson, the word approved. Once he has been approved approved. What does that mean to you when you read that? Once he's been approved, like I'm not sure what that means. Once he's got a license, once he's taken the proper classes, what does that mean exactly? The Greek word for that approved is dokimos. And dokimos means acceptable because it's genuine. Acceptable because it's genuine. And it's actually a term that was used for uh, testing coins to see if they were counterfeit or not. Back in the day when this was written, coins you know were they're not quite as well put together as they are now. Where you could look with a microscope and see little details and all the security features. Back then it was it was a chunk of metal and they stamped it and they were more or less uniform, but it was easy to counterfeit them. And what this term it actually comes from the idea of confirming that a coin is genuine and not counterfeit. So what's being said there is once your faith has stood the test of trial and has been shown to be genuine, then you'll be rewarded with the crown of life. Okay. That's pretty straightforward. Once your faith has been tested, because that's the only way you're going to know if your faith is true and genuine is if it's tested and you still hold on to it. That's what James is saying. Now, the crown of life sounds nice. Who doesn't want the crown of life? Here's a question for you, though. How many crowns are there spoken of in, let's just go, New Testament? How many, how many crowns are out there that are given as a reward? Any idea? Kayla, I expected you to, like, throw up your hand. Come on. <laughs> There's five. There's five that are described in New Testament Scripture. I'm going to talk to you about it. We're going to focus on the crown of life, but here they are. There's the imperishable crown, okay? When we exchange things that decay and can't be destroyed for heavenly things that cannot, that's an imperishable crown. If you want to study it on your own, 1 Corinthians 9, Matthew 6, and 1 Peter 1, they're in there. The second one is the crown of rejoicing. These all sound great, don't they? The crown of rejoicing. Our reward at the second coming of Christ where every tear will be wiped away. That's the crown of rejoicing. That's 1 Thessalonians 2 um, and Revelation 21. Then there's the crown of righteousness. This is a gift from Christ given to those who await his appearing. That's in 2 Timothy. Uh, 2 Timothy 4.8 is that one. Then the crown of glory. That one's talked about a lot. The crown of glory, the very glory of Christ revealed in us as we are transformed into his likeness. That's the crown of glory. That's 1 Peter 5.4, Romans 8.18. There's a lot more for all these two. But then we come to the crown of life. The crown of life. It's the reward for holding on to genuine faith in the face of trials and adversity. And it translates really as the garland of victory, the crown that they, that they would give to the victor in the games would wear that garland, the crown of glory. 1 Peter 5, 4, uh, no, I'm sorry, James 1, 12, which is what we're talking about, and then Revelation two ten. Revelation is where it talks again about the crown of life. So overcoming trials and adversity are difficult to overcome if you resort to flesh solutions. Anybody try to solve a major problem in your life on your own? And what's, what are the odds of it going well? 50-50, if you're lucky? We're constantly challenged to choose the right path, especially when it's a choice between this thing and this thing. It's, my hand hurts, should I take it off the fire or not? Most of us would solve that one on our own, Okay. But when it's a choice between two paths, that's when it gets trickier. Proverbs 14, 12. I love this scripture. There's a way which seems right to a person, but its end is the way of death. Gosh, doesn't that mean, doesn't that tell you that when you're looking at two options, the one that you immediately want to gravitate to is usually not going to be the right one? Because oftentimes that's our fleshly choice. And the Holy Spirit takes just a beat longer and we have to ask. And then we'll shoot, and we'll make that right choice. So back to my conversation I had with that gentleman, if God is sovereign, doesn't that mean that he puts things in my path and also knows how I'm gonna handle it? So it's not really my fault, is it? We see all kinds of situations in scripture. I taught for a year through the book of Job. Any of you who were with us during that God allowed Satan to tempt Job because he knew, God, sovereign God, knew that Job was going to be able to stand up to those trials and those temptations. But this is the problem. A lot of people start thinking that way, that if a trial comes my way and I handle it wrong, well, God knew I would, and that's not okay. James 1.13, no one is to say when he is tempted I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? But let's look at that one word, tempted. It's a Greek word again, perazzo, And perazzo means to test, but it's usually in the negative sense, as in to give in, give into temptation. No one is to say, That God is the one causing you to do that. Because the implication there is that a sovereign God, loving God, creator of the heavens and earth, is going to try and lure you away from the very thing that he sent his son to die to give you. If he sent his son Christ to die on the cross for you and for your sins and to reconcile you to him. Why would he do something to intentionally lure you away from that? Habakkuk 1.13 says, Your eyes are too pure to look at evil, and you cannot look at harm favorably. God doesn't look at evil and harm and say, "Ah, yeah, that's, that's pretty good. I'll, I'll just let that roll out. Isaiah 59.2, But your wrongdoings have caused a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Matthew, Mark, Luke all record Jesus warning that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. If God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus are one and the same, we're not going to have Jesus dying on the cross to reconcile you and to pay for your sins while we have a sovereign God going, I'm just going to cause him to sin more. So you might say, "Wait, wasn't Jesus Himself tempted? If God, God, can't be tempted by evil, and He does not tempt anyone, let's look at the situations in Scripture where it seems like they are being tempted by God." Jesus in the wilderness, Luke four one to twelve. Anybody know that one? Jesus has just been baptized. John the Baptist, heavens open up, a dove comes down. A voice from the heavens says, this is my son with whom I am pleased. And then Jesus retreats into the wilderness for 40 days to fast. And we see Satan tempting him, don't we? We see see Satan saying, Luke 4, um, verse 3, And the devil said to him, If you're the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Then Satan takes him up on a hilltop, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and says to him, I'll give you all this domain and glory, for it's been handed over to me, and I give it to whoever I want. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. What's Jesus say? You shall serve the Lord your God And worship him only. Then he brings him up to a pinnacle overlooking Jerusalem. That's verse 9. And had him stand on the pinnacle and said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. And Jesus then answers in verse 12. It's been stated, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So he's being tempted without a doubt. Satan is tempting Jesus. But notice how Jesus responds to each one of those temptations. Now, this is important. You'll see here in just a second. Now, remember that, because that's very clearly Satan attempting to tempt Jesus. So, he attempted. What about Abraham now? Because one of the issues that we're having, one of the reasons that this this, uh, letter was even written to the audience back then is it was a Jewish audience who had been driven away from their homes. They had left their homes. They had left their jobs. They had left uh, any any fortunes or anything that they had amassed. They pretty much had to leave behind when they fled into these various places. Some of them were doing okay. They weren't all just refugees. But they had to, one way or another, leave behind the life that they had known. And they had started to grumble about it a little bit and say, God's tempting us just like he did Abraham. Because they knew the story of Abraham was very, very well known. And they started comparing themselves to Abraham. So what about Abraham? Genesis 22, 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. Says it right there in scripture. And said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. That word tested is a Hebrew word because it's Old Testament now, so that's Hebrew, is Nassau. And Nassau means to test or to try. If you have a King James, it strictly uses the word tempted. Okay, so God did test Abraham. But here's what's important to know. God tested his faith but stopped short of allowing Abraham to sin. Genesis 22, 11, 12. But the angel of the Lord, this is when Abraham's being told to sacrifice his son Isaac. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And the angel said, do not reach out your hand against the boy and do not do anything to him. For I know that you fear God since you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. So God tested Abraham, testing, tempting, not the same thing. Here's what I need you to know. Underline this, write it down. The idea of being tempted includes a response on our part. We can give in to temptation or we can resist. Here's what I mean by that. You go out in the world today, you will be tempted in many ways. Eat this, eat too much of this, gamble on this, look at that. It's going to be all over the place. You will be tempted. Scripture promises us that the enemy prowls around all day long looking for someone to devour. He does that by temptation. So you will be tempted. The response is what makes that temptation complete. So you have to give into it before you can say, You've been tempted. I know it's fine degrees of detail, but temptation will come your way. Make no mistake. It's your response to it. Do you give in or do you resist? We're going to talk more about that here in just a second. Here's the worldly response to temptation, though. James 1.14, but each one is tempted when he or she is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Whose lust? His own. Small h his own. That word enticed is another Greek word. It's delazo. And it means to lure or entice. It's a fishing term. It means to dangle a bait. It's different than a net. You cast a net, you just take whoever's there. But enticing, that's you dangle a bait and it's up to them then to take that bait. It's to entice someone into a trap. So when each one is enticed, that dangle, that lure is dangled in front of you and it's up to you whether you take that or not. MacArthur, I have a MacArthur study Bible. I, I, I love that for a lot of his theology. He's a cessationist, so those of you who go, oh, MacArthur, I know that. But he's also a good theologian in many ways. His definition of lust Is a strong desire of the human soul to enjoy or pursue something to satisfy the flesh. It's very straightforward. Lust can be sexual sin, right? What else do we get enticed by to satisfy our flesh? Food, Food? drink, money, hobbies. football games. You know, there's so many things that can cause us to pursue something to satisfy our flesh. And that's what lust is. James warns us that lust is not, it's not something that just comes upon you in a moment's notice. It can. But it's also something that can grow. He calls it conceived. He's calling, attendees. Drawing a parallel to childbirth. James 1.15. Then when lust has conceived, meaning it's simmered for a while, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it has run its course, brings forth death. Two scriptures that talk about that, that just back that up. Job 15. Again, here's Job 15, verse 35. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. Their womb fashions deceit. I don't want to be who he's talking about there. Romans six twenty three, the wages of sin is death. Now though, hear James' heart. Remember, James was the leader of the church of Jerusalem, and he's talking to his basically his flock, his people that have been scattered. Here in this next scripture, just you can just hear his heart for his people. James 1:16: do not be deceived, my brothers and sisters. This isn't somebody laying down the law. This isn't somebody saying, thou hast sinned and thou shalt burn. He's not saying that. You can just, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. The deception here that he's talking about is blaming your sins on a circumstance or a system maybe that God has allowed. God allowed this to happen and therefore my reaction to it is not really my fault. James 1.17, every good thing given. Now, in continuity here, do not be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. Father of lights is just a very common Hebrew term because he created the sun and the stars and the moon. Um... He's saying that though the world and our circumstances will always be changing, will always constantly be in flux, God never does. And he can't simultaneously be both the tempter and the giver of good gifts. It can't work like that. James 1.18, in the exercise of his will, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. We've heard the term first fruits" all the time. First fruits was an ancient term to start with, meaning the best of your harvest. And it was given to God, given to God in faith that if you give him the best of your crops, the first part, the best of your crops, then he will bless you far beyond that. Proverbs 3, 9, 10 says, "'Honor the Lord from your wealth, and from the first of all your produce, "'then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine.'" But we, as Christians, are first fruits of God's creation. We are a shadow of the promise of this renewal and regeneration that's come and a covenant fulfilled. Now, Christ was the first fruit, and we are a shadow of that. First Corinthians 15, 20-23 says, But the fact is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man death came, and by a man also came resurrection from the dead. But as in Adam, all die. So also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. That's us. So to wrap this all up, who's to blame for temptation then? Wild guesses, anyone? That scripture in Corinthians talks about Adam, Adam was very quick to blame God for putting Eve in his path, right? When he was faced with God saying, why did you do that? You gave her to me, trying to to blame. It's got to be somebody else's fault, right? It can't be our fault. We want to transfer responsibility for our mistakes to someone else. It has to be someone else's fault, some circumstance, something because it really can't ultimately be my fault, can it? The temptation during trials, here's the dangerous thing, is to trust God less, to take matters into our own hands. That's the danger here. We might decide that God's not strong enough, he's not faithful enough, (coughs) excuse me, he's not paying attention to our current situation, He's busy somewhere else. He's not compassionate enough. Maybe, maybe you're tempted to think my pain and my heartbreak doesn't mean anything to him. And it can be especially difficult. This is something that the Holy Spirit highlighted, and so I just want to share it. This is for whoever, whoever is hearing this. This idea of trusting God, especially during pain and heartbreak, can be especially difficult because some have felt the pain of this world but not the purpose of this world. Pain without purpose is just needless suffering. If you felt the pain, if you felt loss, if you felt lack in this world, the temptation is to think God doesn't care. But you would only think that if you didn't understand the purpose behind that pain if you felt the pain without purpose it's just needless suffering but pain in the pursuit of a purpose given by God produces endurance scripture tells us the reward is the crown of life anybody ever here um, done football practice or any kind of sports practice is it always fun how about guitar practice when I was trying to learn guitar my fingers were bleeding that was no fun but there's a purpose behind it it's not just i just want to enjoy the pain unless you're that guy but and there are those guys but when you know that you have a purpose then the pain of this life pales in comparison to the reward to come but that's what makes your purpose a target That's what makes your purpose the single thing that Satan is trying to steal from you. He wants to take away your idea that there is any point to all this and there is a purpose to the things that we do. Do not be deceived. That's what Satan does. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a thief. Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It's easy to hear it, if you don't know your purpose it's hard to believe Ephesians 2.10 we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand there's nobody born into this world without a purpose nobody is waiting in line somewhere waiting for their purpose to be handed out to them we all have it we've had it from before birth our choice is are we going to walk in that or are we going to let the enemy steal it away because he wants to He's going to steal your joy and your purpose. And here's how he does it he tricks you into giving it up in exchange for a counterfeit something that's shinier, more immediate, something that satisfies your flesh a little better. Because your purpose is often a long game, it's not something that's going to happen this afternoon. But you can satisfy your flesh this afternoon. But your purpose often takes time. The enemy knows that we're not patient. We can't stop him from tempting us, but we can decide how we respond. Do we resist? Do we give in? If we give in, we've given Satan permission. Okay, in deliverance, we call it legal right. If you give in, you have given him permission or dominion over that part of your life. Here's what I mean by that. Bear with me. I know I'm going a little bit long, but bear with me. If we give in, to sin and we give Satan permission over that part of our life, we have also created a place where a just, holy, and righteous God cannot accompany you. Here's how that looks. It got quiet all of a sudden. Most of us, I would venture to say all of us, say, I want to get rid of sin in my life. I want, I want, I want to be who God calls me to be. But... Most of us, I would venture to say all of us, have a part, some some drawer somewhere that has sin in it that we want to hang on to. I'm okay giving everything else to God, but man, I love my drink. I'm okay giving everything else to God, but every now and then porn doesn't hurt anybody, does it? I want to give my whole life to God and be, be faithful and righteous before him. But, man, I like my gambling. And I'm not saying any of those things, well, except for porn. I'm not saying that, that necessarily that stuff all leads to sin. But if we give it over to him, he'll say, okay, that's good for you. That's not good for you. And if we go, I know it's not good for me, but I'll just tuck it away here and hide it. That's when you have decided, God, there's this part of my life that I don't want to give to you. There's this part of my life that I'm going to hang on to because I just enjoy it. But you can have everything else. You've created a part of our lives where he can't go. I don't know about you, but I don't want that. I don't want that in my life. It's not always a conscious decision, though. That's the hard part. He loves us enough to make sure there's always a way. The enemy is powerful, but the enemy just is a liar. That's all he does. He lies, he steals, he's a deceiver. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen: no temptation has overcome you except something common to mankind. And God is faithful, so he won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. When you're faced with him with temptation, what that means, seek the Holy Spirit and he'll show you a way out. But just because somebody shows you the way out, it's still your choice. Am I going to take it? Am I not? Here's some tools, practical tools, bullet points, six bullet points, tools to stand against temptation and reclaim the ground, those those dark places that we've created in our lives where God can't accompany us. Number one, recognize you need a savior. First and foremost, you can't do it on your own thinking you can handle it and control it, Satan's going, yeah, you can handle it. You can totally control it. It won't hurt you. You need to recognize that. Number two, confess in full to God. Hold nothing back. He knows already. You're not going to tell him anything he doesn't know. You're not going to tell him anything that's going to shock him. But he wants to know that you know. And he wants to know that you're willing Next one, repent of your sins. Repent is easy. I could lead us through a prayer of repentance right now and we would all pray that. But what that means is you are literally willing to take those things in your life and just turn your back to them. Just turn away and say, I'm done with that. That's what that means. The word repent literally means turn away. You have to be willing to do that. Turn away from those. Turn towards Him. Next, tear down strongholds. What's a stronghold? It's it's a hiding place that Satan has created in your life, mostly through lies. i will talk to you more about that later. But we've all created these things, and it's lies. I'll never be good enough. I'll never be thin enough. I'll never be healthy enough. I'll never be smart enough. I'll, I'll always need these other things. Whatever it is, those are strongholds. And they're so clever because they sound just like your voice. But they're lies. Next, stand firm in the truth. What is the truth? The truth is the word of God that we teach through every Sunday, but it's more than that. It's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And if you're not sure whether it's the Holy Spirit or it's Satan, test it against the word of God. That's how you discern the truth. And then claim the blood of Christ. What I mean by that, because there's a lot of new agey kind of things that use that term, claim the blood of Christ, pray the blood of Christ. What I mean is accept it and claim it and say the blood of Christ is enough to cleanse me of my sins. The blood of Christ is enough to reconcile me to the Father. The blood of Christ is enough to transform me. It is the ultimate pride, the ultimate sin of pride to say, I know that that works for everyone else, but what I've done is too bad. What I've done is too sinful for God to forgive me. You're saying what Christ did is enough for everybody else, but not for you. It doesn't sound like pride, but it is. And Satan will use that. So here's what we're going to do. We're finished with the message now. I apologize for going long, but I want to pray right now. We've got a prayer team that's going to be in the back. Some of us just need help praying and and taking those things and laying them before God. So look for somebody during this response time in the back with a prayer lanyard. Um, But you don't have to do that. You could stay in your seat and just pray. But here's what I want to do. We are going to pray repentance. And I don't mean... You're going to turn to somebody and you're going to repent of all your sins publicly in front of everybody. If you want to, you can do that. But God knows and he just wants you to give them to you. But the thing is, we don't even know they're there half the time. So we're going to pray that God will show us those things. And then we're going to pray that we turn away from those. And if you're willing to pray that with me, then let's do it right now. Father God, I repent of everything that I have done in my life that is not honoring to you. But more than that, I repent of those things that that I'm hanging on to, that I know they're not honoring to you, and I continue to do them. Father, I pray right now that you would just show me, as I sit right here right now, just seeking your face and seeking your truth, I pray that you show me those hiding places in my life. Show me those strongholds, those places where I have allowed sin to not only live, but but to grow and thrive. Show me those places. Because, God, I want to give them up to you. I want to rid my life of those hiding places, those secrets, those strongholds. So, Holy Spirit, show me right now. Is there something in my life that I need to give up? I need to give over to you right now. Father, I pray that you would take this away from me. I want to turn from it. I want to reject it right now, and I want to exchange that fleshly satisfaction. I want to exchange that for your spirit, for the living water that will never run dry, for the blood of Christ that will cleanse me. That's what I want. I want to walk in your purpose. I want to be a reflection of who you are in this world. So, Lord, use me. Use me. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And we're going to take communion together right now. Um, Over on this side, the way that we do it, I think... I don't see any new faces, but I apologize if I missed you. We'll have one station over here, another station over here. That's wine and bread, and we can do that. When we take communion together, I want you to think about everything that the Holy Spirit just spoke to you while we were praying. Hopefully you participated in that. The Holy Spirit spoke something to you. When you take communion, you're saying, yes, that broken body, that blood, that is enough. To cover me. That is enough to reconcile me, and I'm not going to let that go to waste by turning right back into the very sin that he died to cleanse me of. When we take communion, that's what we're saying. In the back way of self-serve, if you'd rather do that, but let's move about now. If you need to just sit in your seats and pray for a while, if you need to go to prayer team, you can do that, but let's respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart right now. Amen. Thank you, guys.